Shalom Aleichem, and welcome back to Sefer Maccabim. Last time, we learned about the Maccabees' first defeat at the Battle of Bet Zechariah, where Elazar ben Matityahu was crushed by an elephant he slayed. And we also learned about the subsequent Greek siege of Yerushalayim that was lifted on the 28th of Shavat, after Lysias had to return to Antioch to put down Philip, who had seized the throne. But speaking of seizing the throne, in Chapter 7, we now have some new developments. Remember the Treaty of Apamea we covered in Chapter 6, which the Romans forced the Greeks to sign. While one condition of the treaty we didn't mention was that the Seleucids were required to hand over 20 members of their royal court to Rome, and they would remain in Rome as hostages. This, of course, was a way of ensuring the Seleucids were the Bay Roman orders. One of these hostages was a man named Demetrius, who was a first cousin of the present king Antiochus V. They shared a common grandfather, Antiochus III. Demetrius is sent to Rome, and while he's a hostage there, he grows up. Now, when Antiochus IV dies and is succeeded by his son Antiochus V, Demetrius sees this as unfair. He believes he has a better claim to the throne, because his father, Seleucus IV, was the original successor of their grandfather, Antiochus III. But Seleucus was murdered by his finance minister, and although Antiochus Epiphanes, brother of Seleucus, killed the usurper, he then went on to usurp the throne himself. And only because of this is Antiochus V currently on the throne, and not Demetrius. Demetrius tries to convince the Roman Senate to release him and restore the Seleucid throne to him, but the Romans refuse his request. Why? Because Antiochus V is only nine years old at this time, whereas Demetrius is 22 and a fully grown man, and the Senate believe that Seleucid Greece should be ruled by a boy rather than a man, presumably because this makes the empire easier to control. Later, after the Battle of Betzacharia we covered in the previous chapter, Rome sent an emissary to punish Antiochus V for violating the terms of the Treaty of Apamea, because this treaty forbade them from using elephants, but the Greeks used elephants. So the Roman emissary comes to sink Antiochus' ships and to hamstring his elephants, greatly weakening the boy king. In all the commotion, Demetrius escapes from confinement and makes his way to Antioch, where he is welcomed as king. He has his men immediately execute Lysias and Antiochus V, and Demetrius has himself proclaimed as king over the Seleucid Empire. What does this mean for the Jews? It means the deal Lysias made with the Jews at the end of the last chapter, wherein Lysias would grant the Jews freedom of religion in exchange for them remaining a part of the empire, a deal which the Hasidim accepted but the Maccabim rejected, this deal no longer stands. This does seem to suggest that the Maccabim's perspective of only being assured freedom of worship after achieving political independence in our own land, this perspective is shown to be a more advanced one. Certainly more so than that of the Hasidim, because if you simply accept any deal that allows you to live in peace based on the whims of a foreign ruler, what do you do if that ruler changes his mind? Our sages taught us loud and clear in Pirkei Avot. Beware of rulers, they do not befriend someone except for their own benefit. They appear friendly when it benefits them, but they do not stand by a person in his time of need. Once installed as king, Demetrius sends his general, named Bachides, to solidify his rule in Judea. Bachides comes to Yerushalayim, which is currently controlled by the Maccabim. He wrestles the city from them without much resistance, and then he appoints his own Kohen Gadol. Now, this does seem like an awful flashback to the years prior to the revolt, when Antiochus Epiphanes installed the Hellenized Jew Menelaus as his own Kohen Gadol. It's not quite so bad this time, however. To explain why, 
we have to appreciate that not all Hellenized Jews were Hellenized to the same extent. Menelaus was one of the more radical Hellenists. Those Jews who dropped all traces of Torah observance, did their utmost to assimilate into Greek culture, who reversed the circumcisions and ran naked races in the gymnasia, and went out of their way to help the ruling Greeks Hellenize all Jews into their new culture. Not all Hellenized Jews, however, were quite so radical. The Kohen Gadol appointed by Bakhidis, a Jew named Eliakim, or Alchemist as he calls himself, he is part of a class of Jews who are more moderately Hellenized. These are Jews who remained loyal to Torah and mitzvot, but they saw the world through a Greek worldview. It's important to realize that ever since the time of Noach, Shem, and Ever, possibly even before that, our ancestors always had a very unique Hebrew worldview. They saw the world through a very unique value system, which as I learned from Rabbi Yehuda HaKohen, anyone who wants to learn how our ancestors perceive the world should learn the Kuzari, the book of fundamental Jewish thought written by Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi. Now, even though we had suffered exile since receiving the Torah before this point, none of our captors tried to change us internally. The Assyrians and the Babylonians displaced us from our home country, while Haman wanted to wipe us out physically. The Greeks were the first ones to introduce foreign ideas into our worldview, the first ones to mess with the value system we inherited from our ancestors and to change the way we looked at the world. Let me give an example. The ancient Hebrews related to land and to nature as something very precious, something to forge a bond with, certainly something to be used but never abused, always to be treated with reverence and never disrespected. I think the best example to demonstrate this is Shemitah. Every seventh year, the land would be left fallow, it would have an opportunity to rejuvenate itself, and we would be reminded that the land doesn't really belong to us, but rather we belong to it. The Greeks, however, did not see land as something to forge a bond with. They related to land purely as something to be conquered, as real estate, as currency. They saw no reason to respect the environment and invested much effort in building up the land they conquered in a bid to expand their empire as far as possible. And when Judea was absorbed into the Greek empire and we started intermingling with the Greeks, they introduced a lot of foreign ideas into our thinking and a lot of Jews absorbed these ideas. As a result, we have in this time Jews who are still completely committed to observing Torah, but they see the world through a non-Jewish lens. The Romans later adopted the Greek values and way of thinking, and it developed gradually into the outlook of Western civilization. And without meaning to offend anyone in the slightest, perhaps there's also a group of Jews today who parallel these moderate Hellenists, who are completely loyal to Torah and mitzvot, but who see the world through a Western worldview, as opposed to the way our ancestors have seen the world for thousands of years. May I suggest we might call these Jews modern Orthodox? Anyway, where were we? Oh yes, Bakhidis has wrestled Yerushalayim from the Maccabim and appointed the moderate Hellenist Alchemist as Kohen Gadol. Alchemist is something of a compromise candidate. He is a legitimate Kohen, unlike his predecessor Menelaus, who was from Binyamin. He's seen as Greek enough for the Seleucids and Jewish enough for the Hasidim. The Maccabim don't like him because he was appointed by the empire, and we don't accept the Kohen Gadol unless we appoint him ourselves. Alchemus does not like the Maccabim. Remember, he sees the world through a Greek lens, and he essentially sees the Seleucid Empire as the good guys, and the Maccabim as a bunch of fanatics. So when a delegation of 60 Hasidim come to Yerushalayim to welcome Alchemus as Kohen Gadol, he suspects them of being on Yehuda's side and has all 60 of them killed. This killing sends a shock through Judean society, especially among the Hasidim. They believed the Seleucid Empire had made peace with them, but now they're being killed again. 
As a result of this, more Jews begin drifting over to Yehuda's side, that the Syrian Greek Empire is something to make war against, not to cozy up to or make peace with. This feeling, I imagine, was intensified when Bakhidis has to return to Antioch for some reason, but he stops at the city of Beit Zuchor in the Galil and massacres the Jewish inhabitants. So as before, Judean society is not unified. On one side, you have those Jews aligned with alchemists, the Hellenists with perhaps some of the more moderate Jews, and on the other side, you have the Jews aligned with Yehuda, the Maccabim, and quite possibly a lot of the Hasidim. It's not open warfare, but it's like a cold war. There's a lot of friction between the groups within the country. Alchemist looks at the country, and he realizes that as long as Yehuda Hamakabi is alive, there can never be peace. So he goes to Demetrius, and he asks him, please send me forces to help hand down Yehuda Hamakabi to get rid of him. Demetrius is happy to oblige, and sends one of his generals named Nicanor, who's also the commander of the elephant unit. So General Nicanor comes to Judea, and he meets with Yehuda Hamakabi, and there's mutual respect between them. Both men, after all, are ferocious warriors, and they actually, for a time at least, become friends. Nicanor even recommends Yehuda take a wife, start a family. How do we understand Nicanor's words? It's important we do so, because this will shed a lot of light on the conflict in Israel today, and how it's presented around the world. To understand Nicanor's request of Yehuda, we have to take a look at some more revolutionary theory. We touched on it back in chapter 3, but in any war of liberation, there's always the oppressor and the oppressed. And in the Maccabean Revolt, these roles are filled by the Seleucid Empire and the Jews, respectively. Now, in such a war of liberation, what does each side want? The oppressed, on the one hand, they want freedom for their land. They want to occupy out of their land. They want to be free from foreign rule. And they are willing to make sacrifices to achieve this. The oppressor, on the other hand, he is benefiting from his presence in the country by taxing and exploiting the oppressed people to take their goods and raw materials. The oppressor wants things to remain quiet so he can continue milking the country and earning money from it. The oppressor wants peace. Therefore, Nicanor is nudging Yehuda to basically retire, trying to tell him that there's nothing to fight for anymore, man. You have your freedom of worship. You can keep Shabbat, Brit Mila, Rosh Chodesh, etc. We're not forcing anything on you. What do you want to fight for? Political independence? You know how many of you would die if you tried that? Things are okay. As you are, you'll be okay. Because Nicanor's job, as he sees it, is to keep the peace. In a war of liberation, the oppressed wants change and justice and is willing to use violence to achieve this. The oppressor says, no, violence is bad. We just want peace. What do they mean by this peace? A nonviolent version of the status quo. And I'm going to say something controversial now which is that I think this throws a lot of light on the situation regarding Israel advocacy on university campuses around the world. Jewish students advocating for Israel are often drowned out by hordes of other students calling to free Palestine, stop Israel apartheid, etc. Now, some of these students, I'll give you, deep down, genuinely hate our people, what we stand for, and truly want to see us wiped from the face of the earth. And they disguise the hatred for Israel as support for Palestinians. Some of them really are Amalekites in the garb of Canaanites. But I can't believe that's true about every single Palestinian supporter. Some of them actually are good people at heart, and they want to bring about progressive change in the world. They see the conflict in Israel on the news. They see Palestinians being mistreated at the hands of Israeli soldiers. Instinctively, they sympathize with the Palestinians. They may not know anything about the history of our conflict. All they see is one people are being oppressed at the hands of another. And instinctively, they want to stand by the side of the oppressed people. 
Then they arrive at university and see the slogans being trumped by either side. They see the Palestinian supporters campaigning with messages like end the unjust military occupation, stop settler colonialism in the Middle East. In other words, messages advocating on the side of the oppressed for progressive change. Then they turn to the Jews advocating for Israel. And what messages are being put forward from our side? Israel just wants peace. Israel has amazing high tech. Israel produces great cherry tomatoes. In other words, despite Jews being the true natives of the land, we're presenting ourselves as if we were the colonizers. So these students see the messages being presented by both sides, and the conclusion they jump to is, oh, these guys want justice, and these guys want peace. So Israel must be the oppressors here. And then they join the pro-Palestinian movements. This holds true not just for non-Jews, but for many Jews who never received a proper education on these matters. And let's be honest, the way we're presenting ourselves, who can blame them? Returning to our story. Nukuna tries to influence Yehuda to retire and start a family, as he believes he can achieve his goal of creating peace in the region if he convinces the leader of the revolution to step down. Alchemist doesn't agree. He believes there can only be peace in Judea if Yehuda is killed and the Maccabees are crushed. So Alchemist sends a message to Demetrius saying, the general Nikona, whom you sent to Judea to hunt down Yehuda Maccabee, is not doing his job. He actually made peace with the enemy. So Demetrius summons Nikona back to Antioch and scolds him. I told you to hunt down Yehuda and kill him. What do you think you're playing at? Go do what I told you to do. So Nikona returns to Judea and when Yehuda meets with him next, he senses something off about Nikona's behavior. His attitude towards Yehuda is not the same as before. Yehuda, suspecting foul play, disappears. Nicanor is now under pressure from the emperor and goes out to fight Yehuda's forces. But Yehuda beats him easily and kills around 5,000 of Nicanor's men. Enraged, Nicanor marches into Yerushalayim, up to the base of Migdash, points at the building, and the text tells us what happens next. And he swore on earth, saying, Unless Yehuda and his men are delivered into my hand, I will burn down this house. And he left in a great rage. Nicanor is actually threatened to destroy the base of Migdash, unless Yehuda is handed over to him. As we know, Nicanor clearly didn't destroy the base of Migdash. That role went to the Roman general Titus, Yemachshima, who commanded the Roman forces around 200 years later. So what happened to Nicanor? Let's find out. This declaration of Nicanor means the previous under-the-surface war between the Seleucids and the Jews and their respective supporters now erupts into open warfare. Yehuda mobilizes his soldiers to fight, but he has trouble galvanizing a force. Most of his soldiers had already returned to their houses, to their farms, to their villages. It's hard to convince them to leave their lives of calm again to return to the hills to fight. Don't forget, they've already been through three years of tough battle to free Yerushalayim the first time. Only the most committed, around 3,000 of Yehuda's closest followers, answer the call. They gather in Adassa to prepare for the battle, while Nicanor gathers a huge army not far away in Bet-Kharon, a location of one of Yehuda's earlier battles. Nicanor and his soldiers are all united in their determination to fight Yehuda. But the Jewish camp, where the soldiers are fasting to prepare for the battle tomorrow, they're still arguing among themselves. The Hasidim, remember, didn't respond to Yehuda's call to arms, and there's still the debate going on as to whether they should be fighting to free Eretz Israel from foreign rule. The Hasidim, as we've mentioned previously, hold that they absolutely have an obligation to fight and die to be able to keep the Torah and live by the ways of their ancestors. But this can be done while living under foreign rule, 
it's not necessary to die in order to liberate Eretz Israel. The Maccabim, on the other hand, agree they have an obligation to die, to live by the ways of the Torah, but not just that, they also have a Torah obligation to liberate Eretz Israel from foreign rule. This Machlokot is ongoing amid the Jewish camp, even the day before the battle. That night, Yehuda HaMakkabi has a dream. This dream is recounted by Yehuda in the final chapter of the second book of Maccabees, for anyone daring enough to try and translate the Hebrew on Safaria. In his dream, Yehuda is visited by a man named Chonia with a chet. Now Chonia was the last legitimate Kohen Gadol before Antiochus Epiphanes interfered with the Gohuna and installed Menelaos in his place. It's possible that Chonia is also Yehuda's grandfather. Yehuda's father Matichahu was known as Matichahu ben Yochanan. Chonia is not too dissimilar from Yochanan, it's possible they were the same person. Anyway, in this dream, Chonia introduces Yehuda to another man with silver hair. A man he's told is none other than Yumiyahu Hanavi, who prophesied to Am Yisrael at the time of the destruction of the first base of Mikdash, some 300 years before. Yumiyahu hands Yehuda a golden sword and tells him, Take the sword in your hand and go and vanquish your enemies. Now this is a very significant dream, because Yumiyahu was likely the Torah source that Hasidim were bringing against the Maccabim, to prove they don't have an obligation to fight foreign rule. The essence of Yirmiyahu's Nevoah was telling Am Yisrael, the base of Mikdash is about to fall and you're going to be taken captive in Bava by Nebuchadnezzar. While you're there, don't try to fight back, don't try and regain independence, submit to Bavel's rule for 70 years. The Hasidim took this message of Yirmiyahu and they showed it to the Maccabim saying, see, Hashem doesn't want us to oppose foreign rule. He told us through his own Navi that he wants us to submit. But we know that if a Navi comes and tells us to break Halacha one time, we believe him. Back in ancient Israel, when the Vora was still among us, the Navi was like the wild card among the people. Society could be running along, and suddenly the Navi could come along with a message from Hashem and says, Hashem commands us to do such and such an act, and we will be forced to obey, even if Hashem's command from the Navi appears to contradict Halacha. But here's the crucial thing, only if this is a one-time event. If, on the other hand, a Navi comes and tells us a mitzvah is no longer a mitzvah, he must be a false prophet and we don't believe him. Rambam also discusses this in Hilchas Tisodio Torah. Yumiyahu's Nebuah about the Babylonian exile was a one-time event. He was telling B'nai Israel to submit to foreign rule, but only that one time. Yumiyahu giving Yehuda this golden sword was him in essence telling Yehuda, don't allow the Hasidim to use my Nebuah as a weapon against me. Galut Bavel was a one-time event when we were supposed to admit to the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. That does not mean there is no longer a mitzvah to liberate Eretz Israel. Go forth and vanquish your foes and our Kodesh Baruch Hu will be with you. The following day is the 13th of Adar. Yehuda's 3,000 soldiers go out to meet Nicanor's 9,000. Many of the Jewish soldiers, upon seeing the numerical superiority of the Syrian Greeks, are scared. But Yehuda delivers an inspirational talk to his men to strengthen them in the face of the impending battle. He reminds them how in the days of Chizkiyahu HaMelech, the Assyrians besieged Jerusalem, but destroying angels went out and slew 185,000 foreign soldiers in one night. In Yehuda delivering this speech of encouragement to his men, he is actually fulfilling a mitzvah assay, because there's a mitzvah assay that before a Jewish army goes out to battle, a Kohen should address them, reminding them what they are fighting for, of the obligation to go out and fight Hashem's wars, and in order to fill his soldiers with the Munna. In fact, the Rambam writes in his Mishnah Torah that it is actually forbidden for a Jewish soldier to be afraid in battle.
Following his divine pep talk, Yehuda leads the soldiers into battle against Nicanor with an unmatched ferocity. Yehuda is the first one to reach Nicanor, and Nicanor is the first Seleucid slain in the battle. Once they see their commander dead, the other mercenaries lose heart and all of them flee with Yehuda's soldiers in hot pursuit. What happens next is truly unbelievable. Jews from the surrounding villages see the mercenaries in flight, and they pour down the sides of the valley they are fleeing through, trapping them. With them in front and Yehuda's men behind them, the Jews butcher the mercenaries, hacking at them and killing them one by one until every single one of the 9,000 has died. It's truly an incredible event and another miraculous victory for Am Yisrael. The Jews rejoice and take the spoils of war. Yehuda cuts off the head and right arm of the dead Nicanor. It's also possible Yehuda originally killed him with a strike, using the signature strike of the tribe of Gad we discussed in chapter 3. Yehuda hangs Nicanor's head and right arm on the walls of Yerushalayim, because Nicanor had stretched out his hand and pointed at the base of the Mikdash, declaring he would destroy it. So he's punished Midakanagid Midah. And then the rabbis declare a Chag, that every year, on the 13th of Adar, on the day of the battle, this would be celebrated as a Chag, named Yom Nicanor, the festival of Nicanor. And that's the end of chapter 7. Before we finish for today, I just want to point out that much of the material included in these past two shirim on chapters 6 and 7 I gathered from a class by Rabbi Huda Akoin on Yom Nicanor. So, this is really significant what we've just learned here. A Yom Tov on the Hebrew calendar that many of us might not have even been aware of until now. Indeed, when we think of the 13th of Adar, the first thing that springs to mind is not a Chag instituted from a Maccabean victory. We think of Tanit Esther, directly preceding Purim. So how do we lose track of Yom Nicanor? We mentioned back in the introduction about how the Maccabean revolt introduced several new Chagim onto our calendar, including the eight-day dedication ceremony following the victory at Betzur and the lifting of the siege around Yerushalayim on the 28th of Shabbat. After the Romans destroyed the Beit HaMikdash, most of these holidays were annulled by the Chachamim, but two survived, the eight days of Hanukkah and this one, Yom Nicanor. Yom Nicanor was celebrated until several hundred years later during the time of the Ge'onim, when it was more or less swept under the rug and replaced with the fast of Esther. But Yom Nicanor is now experiencing a revival in modern-day Israel. It's true that the daytime is dedicated to the fast, but the previous night still provides an opportunity for Yom Nicanor celebrations. If we want to be part of this revival, perhaps we can start by learning at that time the second book of Maccabees, chapters 14 and 15, which tell the story of the day. So this brings us to the end of a rather long episode. We'll resume next time with chapter 8, when Yehuda reaches out across the Mediterranean Sea to find allies against the Greeks elsewhere. <laughs>